It is a pleasure for me to be with you this morning to share in worship. I have had such a wonderful time um, in uh, Bible study, uh, both yesterday and uh, this morning, and um, also in worship. I've uh, been feeling quite at home, and I thank you for that. Um, I also want to thank uh, Steve for the wonderful hospitality, and Anita, and also Emily for the wonderful uh, way in which she's helped me um, maneuver through all of the preparations to come to be with you this weekend. I also bring greetings to you from Union Presbyterian Seminary, as uh, Steve noted. Uh, we are very proud of the alumni who are preaching and teaching around the country and around the world, indeed. Uh, we. Um, um, uh, share uh, our recognition of them as the gift of what we do. We don't have to uh, speak about um, the work that we do, the ministry we do at Theological Education. That work speaks for itself and people like Steve as they preach and teach and pastor in congregations across our world. So I um, also do want to uh, invite you, if you should ever find yourself in Richmond, Virginia, where we have our main campus, our residential campus, or in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we have a weekend campus um, on the campus of uh, Sharon Presbyterian Church. Uh, we would be delighted to welcome you there as you have welcomed me here. So please know that um, you will find yourself at home if you find yourself on either one of our campuses. Um, it's a pleasure, again, to be with you to share in worship. Now, we've been sharing from the book of Revelation, and I'm going to continue with that now as we um, think together about this scripture that comes from chapter 12, beginning at verse 10. To set a little bit of the stage, chapter 12 opens where John sees a vision in heaven, and this vision is of a woman clothed, uh, with, the, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. She is about to give birth to the Messiah. And then in the next vision John has, he also sees in the heavens a vision of a great red dragon. That dragon wants to devour the Messiah as soon as it is born. This confrontation, in the midst of this confrontation, a war breaks out in heaven, and Michael throws the dragon out of heaven and down to the earth, where the dragon now seeks out God's people, as it once had sought out to make war in heaven itself. It's that backdrop that brings us to chapter 12, starting at verse 10. Let us listen for God's word to us. Then I, John, heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. After studying the book of Revelation for almost ten years now, the thing remains hard for me. People will ask me stuff about the book, and I will still have to say, I don't know, stumped stupefied, stymied, after all these years, after all that research and writing. Every now and then, though, I have a breakthrough, God's grace. Sometimes it's not a big realization, just a tiny unveiling, but it feels good just the same, because every time it happens, I feel a little bit closer to understanding something tremendous that God wanted us to see and hear in God's wondrous work that John has brought to us. Like a morning, some time ago, I was in my closet getting dressed, fiddling with a, 
button on the right sleeve, you know, in the middle of the forearm. You men know it. It's the one that's so troublesome to try to button up every morning when you're trying to get ready to go to work or wherever you're going. So I was fiddling with this little button on my sleeve, and all of a sudden, in the midst of my struggle, another little piece of the book of Revelation came clear to me. Just a tiny piece, but an important moment. For some crazy reason, at 7, 12 a.m. on a February morning, half-dressed, standing there in my closet, this ridiculous open-mouthed facial expression glaring back at me in the mirror, I glimpsed a vision from the Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It was lit by now. People were giving up stuff all over Christendom, and I was having flashbacks to the holiday where people get stuff all over Christendom. I was as out of season as somebody wearing white shoes after Labor Day. That's still the wrong thing to do, right? (laughs) I've never really understood It's a Wonderful Life. My wife, Sharon, loves the thing. I tolerate it with her. First thing, it's in black and white. Or at least the proper version of it is in black and white. I'm sorry, but I like looking at things in color. I don't trust stuff that's in black and white. Too nightmarish. God created the world in technicolor for a reason. (laughs) Second thing is the thing makes no sense. As a critical article on the movie declared this past Christmas season, old Mr. Potter, the mean banker, practically steals money from George Bailey and puts George Bailey $8,000 in debt. At the end of the movie, when it looks like George is bankrupt because of that lost $8,000, the good news is that George's friend wires in a line of credit for $25,000. And that's only good news when you don't think about what has just happened. What has just happened is that George, once $8,000 in debt, is now $33,000 in debt. Two days after Christmas, he'll realize what has happened and he'll stop singing Christmas carols and start singing the blues. Third thing is, you know, I'm troubled by Clarence. First thing is, I just don't like the name Clarence for an angel. I mean, Brian's a good name, but you wouldn't expect Brian to be the name of an angel. Gabriel, Raphael, Michael, those are angel names. Clarence is also an old, tottering, teetering, almost fool of a guy, and that's not how an angel looks. Angels are fierce. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, Bruce Lee, Jason Bourne kind of guys in their prime. An angel is supposed to be the Terminator with wings, you know, only the good version of the Terminator. I can't watch a movie where the angel looks like he's the weakest person in the promotion, but that morning, in my closet, I got it. It's a Wonderful Life is an apocalyptic story. It's hiding something beneath all the silliness of Pottersville and angels getting their wings. Apocalyptic materials are materials that reveal something about the future so as to make it more urgent how we live in the present. And so the angel, miscast as he is, shows George Bailey something of the future. The angel reveals what the future would look like if George had never been born so that George will see more clearly the meaning of his present. Without George, the present would have been devastated because the little teeny things George did helped shape the positive reality of the town, helped create hope in hopeless situations. It literally saved human lives. 
unbeknownst to George, not Mr. Potter, but George was the most powerful man in the town. Without George, the town would have been devastated. So that's why you can't jump off that bridge and commit suicide, George. That's why you can't look at your humble life as a failure, George. That is why God placed you where God placed you in the time that God placed you amidst the struggles that God did not protect you from, George. That is the answer to the why, George. God needed you here to be the kind of man you are to save God's people here. It's a Wonderful Life is a cinematic book of revelation. It's a Wonderful Life revealed that truth about George, but it was also attempting to convince us that the truth about George Bailey is also the truth about each one of us. Without us, Playing the part God would have us play, some part of our world, some part of the community we love would be devastated. Knowing that truth ought to make us appreciate our lives and act more urgently in the way we live them. Which brings me back to the book of Revelation, the real one. And all the apocalyptic materials in the New Testament, really, texts like the Gospel of Mark or the letters of Paul, they are revealing something about the future that hopefully clarifies matters in our present. If we can see it with him, Jesus' visions about the future, the way he lives God's future in his present ministry, makes us appreciate our present lives more and then act more urgently in the way we live our present lives. In God's future, Jesus sees a world where lepers are touched, where women are equals, where the powerless are empowered, where resources are shared, where the hungry are fed, where demonic powers are defeated, where the doors to the house of prayer are open to every person from every station and condition in life, where access to the potency of God's love is boundless and open to anybody who would seek it. Having seen this future Jesus sets about transforming his present and the present circumstance of God's people so they can live that future now. That is the apocalyptic mandate. Having seen the future, create the future in the here and now, no matter what it takes. And it will take much, much patience, much perseverance, much faith, because as Jesus found out, the powers that rule the present do not want to give way to the change demanded by God's future, not without a fight. In the book of Revelation, John is showing us fights. He's showing us cataclysm. He's showing us destruction for a reason. The cataclysms are John's way of representing that fight between God and the powers that challenge God. The cataclysms are the byproduct of God's engagement with the powers who rule our present, who threaten to take over and decimate our world by forever preventing it from transforming into God's world. The destruction John sees is actually the result of God's ultimately constructive fight against those frightening forces. God is fighting for our future in the midst of our present. That is why, according to John the Revelator, God calls us to stand up and witness for the future in the midst of our present, to witness for the kind of world God intends in the face of institutions, peoples, and powers who prefer to maintain and manipulate the world just as it is. Like the angel Clarence, John wants to show us 
just how destructive life would be if we do not stand up and fight against the powers that presume to control our world by witnessing for the lordship of Jesus Christ over our world. Like the angel Clarence, John wants to maintain that every little thing we do has an impact in breaking down the devastation that the powers of evil want to wreak in our world. So here, this critical, arguably the most critical verse in the entire book of Revelation to John. They, John's people, conquered him, the greatest power against God that ever existed, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Their testimony to the lordship of that same blooded Lamb. John wants them to know that they conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, by their witness. The they are the people of faith who populate his churches. The him is the dragon. We are talking incarnational evil, the source of all the horror in our world today, the genesis of everything that is wrong with this creation, that him with a capital H. This is the same him whom only God, one would guess, has enough power to take on. It takes not just an angel, but an archangel to throw him out of heaven. We're not talking Clarence and his bells ringing and his wings getting. This is no job for an angel like Clarence. We are talking Michael. No ordinary angel. Just like once this force is thrown out of heaven, no ordinary human, one would think, can take the dragon on. And yet John says they do. His ordinary humans, his ordinary Christians, they take on the infestation of evil itself and corral it and conquer it. Do you hear what John is saying? That they is us. We are the ones he is talking about. We have that kind of power in us. That is the truth the book of Revelation wants to reveal. With the lamb's blood, they used the dragon's greatest weapon against it. In chapter 5, John describes how the lion of Judah conquers by becoming an executed lamb. It's one of the greatest conundrums of nonviolent resistance in history. The lamb resists the power of the dragon by refusing to fight back, by losing its life, and in the process, fighting back in a way that no one except God could have ever seen coming. The greatest weapon, the powers, whether it be the power of empire, the power of disease, the power of prejudice, the power of injustice, the power of whatever rule that resists the rule of God, the greatest weapon that power has is the weapon of death. The dragon deploys that power against the lion of Judah, slaughtering the lion as though it were a defenseless lamb. It is at that moment of apparent defeat that God does something miraculous. God snatches away the dragon's victory of death by resurrecting the slaughtered lamb to life. This is the revelation of Good Friday and Easter morning. The dragon unleashed death. God grabbed hold of death and conquered it the very moment God brought the slaughtered lamb back to life. John's people, the followers of the Lamb who populate those seven churches in Asia Minor, they follow up on what God has done by throwing that blood victory right back in the dragon's face every time the dragon tries to use death and the fear of dying to threaten God's people and God's world. Their testimony about the Lamb's blood conquest restages, re-energizes that conquest every time they witness to it. Every time we, 
witness to it. You know how some athletes talk trash? I don't like trash talking. I never trash talk when I played any sport because I never had the ability to back any of it up. <laughs> if you can't do the walk, you ought not engage in the talk. But there are some who can back up what they say, and therefore they say it when they need to say it. In those moments of contest and conflict, when one has by the chance of what one says and what one does to make a difference. That's the right time to talk trash when your opponent isn't quite sure. When there's a little bit of doubt in his mind, you help the doubt grow by telling him he's not as good as he thinks he is, that you and he both know you're better. And in that crucial moment when the game is on the line, it's going to show. While the talk to unnerve your opponent, to let him know that you can see the future and the future ends with him down and you up. Do you have the nerve to do something like that? Do you have the nerve to live like that in a world where it looks like God's people and God's causes are often down and destructive causes and destructive people are often up? Do you have the nerve to look them in the situations they perpetuate in the eye and say, I can see the future. God owns the future and God has already given the future to me. That is essentially the testimony John is telling his trash talkers to testify. God beat you when God raised Jesus. Now God is going to beat you again when God raises me up whenever you or the forces that work for you try to put one of God's people or God's causes down. That is like throwing the blood of the lamb right up in the dragon's face whenever the dragon tries to face you down. That's the talk to walk. You can walk that talk because you don't walk alone. God, John says, walks with you. So walk in this world like you don't walk alone. Like George Bailey, if we look at our lives clearly, if we see what the world would be like without our walking through it, we will see tragedy and devastation. Our lives are as important as George Bailey's life. Our witness is as important as John of Patmos's witness. That's what he wants to get across. Without us, without our witness, our world can be devastated. So just as Clarence does with George, so John does with us. John shows us a world that detonates with chaos and devastation. A world that rages because we stayed quiet. A world that is losing its breath because we are saving our breath. A world that has been disempowered because we refuse to expend our power. A world that is dying demonically because we refuse to live angelically. Just like Clarence scared George straight off that bridge where he wanted to give away his life back into a community where he could continue to devote his life to helping others, saving others. With all of his visions of calamity, catastrophe, and cataclysm, John wants to scare us right out of our sanctuary and into our community and our world. Now, I am no John. It's not just that I... I'm not a poet, and he is. It's not just that I'm neither the writer nor the man he was. It is that, you know, I don't like scaring people into doing the right thing. If I were John today, this morning, preaching this sermon, you know what I'd do? Poetically, graphically, viscerally, mercilessly, I would conjure for you a world without any Christians. A world that never had a Christian. Jesus died, and that's where it all ended on Golgotha, in that empty, dusty, desolate tomb. You know, we like to make fun of how stupid the disciples were, and we, were right, we are right to do so. They were. They were stupid. They were scared. And yet, if it had not been for them, 
there is no us. And what would the world have looked like then? No churches, no mission, no sacrifice for others. Yes, we've done some bad things, we Christians, but we have also changed the world dramatically for the better, changed the United States of America, changed Jacksonville, Florida, changed this block, changed this neighborhood, whether it is big things like helping to lower school dropout rates or check homelessness or stem violence against women or end the specter of children wasting away in poverty or the allegedly little things like tending to someone's spiritual brokenness. We have. You do make a difference. I would paint a world for you, a portrait of a world devastated by the lack of Jesus' followers who help the world see that there is a power greater than us who demands that we can live beyond the limitations of our own prejudices and fears and angers and hurts and live into a world that cares more for others than it could ever care for itself. I would want you to know how much it would cost if you and your faith and the transformations that happen because of you and your faith never existed. I want you to know it. I'd want you to see it. I'd want you to be in fear because of it, because in that case, the dragon would rule. Have you ever thought what it might be like to be the coach of a team, a grand underdog of a team? that was playing before millions watching on television and tens of thousands in the stadium. You're in the timeout with just a few precious minutes left in the game. Your team is supposed to be losing by double digits. That's what all the prognosticators have said. And yet there you are just two points down with sports destiny riding on what you say to your team next. So what do you tell them? How do you tell them? Do you talk about destiny? Do you show them what will happen if they do not do their job on the field or on the court that you know they have the gifts and the training to do? Do you tell them that it's not the big things they do now, but their attention to the little things? Do you tell them that if they do the small things, then the big thing, the winning thing, will take care of itself? Do you tell them that they can change everything now? Do you tell them that years from now, people will write books and make movies about this moment if they don't let it slip away, if they rise to this occasion and do what they have been built to do? Well, every moment you step into this church, every single moment we step out into life is a moment just like that. We are huddled here in the sanctuary with the game of life on the line, and much depends. John would claim everything depends on what you do next. That is what church and life look like when you look at church and life through an apocalyptic lens. Something is revealed about church and life that is awesome, and something is expected of us that is incredible. We have a chance in this moment to decide whether what we do when we leave this place today can play a role in the transformation of our church and our world. In her little book, Diary of a Young Girl, Anne Frank, the heroine whose sheer existence witnessed against the satanic powers behind the Nazi Holocaust, wrote what John of Patmos defiantly believed. She wrote, how wonderful it is that no one has to wait a single moment to change the world. John is challenging his people to rise up and rise into every single moment. This moment where the greatest force that has ever stared down humankind 
now roaming and terrorizing the earth, caught up in its own glory, living itself out in poverty, homelessness, spiritual brokenness, political gridlock, the devastation of people desperately seeking hope in a world that seemed hopeless all over our globe and right here in Jacksonville, this moment, every moment is our George Bailey moment. The clock is ticking. Life is on the line. We can secure life if we stand up and face the forces that furiously feed on God's people and do what we can, large or small, to make a difference. We can conquer him by the blood of the Lamb in the word of our testimony. Our story is an apocalyptic story. Just as the angel Clarence wanted to show something miraculous to the mild-mannered George Bailey, so John the Revelator wants to reveal something outrageous to you here at Riverside Presbyterian Church. You. You. You are the most important person in God's story. So live your life like it means something. No, live your life like it means everything. Amen.